right, it's a new, uh, it's exciting to begin a new series uh, through the month of July. There are five Sundays in July. And so after much prayer uh, from the pastors and thinking through what God would have for us, we decided to preach five sermons uh, from the minor prophets, five minor prophet sermons uh, through the month of July. Each pastor will take a chance or a turn uh, to preach on a, one of the prophets. Uh, I'm going to be speaking on Jonah today. Pastor James next week will speak on Nahum, Pastor Thomas on Zephaniah, Pastor Dan on Habakkuk, and Pastor Ben on Haggai. After that reprieve in the prophets, I think I'll be looking to start a series uh, through the book of Titus in the New Testament scripture. Uh, Genesis was 50 chapters, Titus is 3. Uh, so I'll see if I can make Titus last as long uh, as, as Genesis did. If I do that, you can leave, okay? You can just leave. Uh, uh, it would not be my intention or goal at all. I hope you're excited about this mini-series uh, from the Bible, uh, from the Minor Prophets, uh, and that you believe that God will use it to work in our lives, uh, to give us a greater view of who He is and how He works uh, in the lives of His followers. Uh, my task in this series is to preach from uh, likely the most familiar uh, minor prophet in all the Bible. Uh, so I invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah. In my copy of Scripture, the book of Jonah uh, covers two pages. I don't know how they did this. They got it all here on two pages. And uh, that's the whole story. Uh, but we're looking forward to, I look forward to walking through this book uh, with you. Many Christians today believe that Jonah is the material for children's stories or junior church coloring sheets. It's worthy for children's songs, which I tried to get Pastor Ben to lead us in, you know, Jonah, that song. That's all I'm going to do uh, uh, for the singing. Uh, but he just wasn't uh, quite uh, able uh, to lead us in that song. No, um, perhaps afterwards or something uh, you know, in your ABS, you could have your ABS leader lead the song Jonah. That'd be a great way of reviewing my sermon. Um, we think it's good for children's songs or, or maybe the, the wall mural in the church nursery. Uh, but sometimes we struggle to see its immediate relevance for adults. Uh, but the book of Jonah is a book that remains relevant not only for children, but also for adults. And so today we're going to look at this timeless message and devote full attention to what it says about God. Now, since this story only contains the name of one character, Jonah, the son of Amittai, it's obvious upon reading through it that the emphasis is not upon human characters. The emphasis in this book is placed upon God. It seems likely that the author's central message involves revealing something about God. Now, to be honest, many people, when they come to Jonah, the story of Jonah, actually struggle immensely with what this text does say about God. But as we come today, I would encourage you that it will be our goal to look closely at what the text says about God, how it describes him, not our vision for him. Okay, but how does the scripture describe God and then to reverently submit 
to what the scripture says about God in this story. So today we're going to look at this book together. It's a short story. There are four chapters, but only 48 verses. Only 48 verses in the book. We'll consider the whole story together. Um, If you have the handout that I've given to you, there'll be uh, two uh, points that I'll make today. We're going to do a, a survey through the book to remind us all of the story or inform us of the story. And then uh, we are also uh, at that point going to look at its central message. So quick survey through and then its central message. All right. And I do want my PowerPoint on if it's working. Okay. They're, they're working on that. No problem. All right, so we start with the story of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a minor prophet like no other. Its message is less prophecy. Uh, as I read through the book, I was looking for prophetic statements. Because this, you know, it's in a genre of books called minor prophets. So I'm looking for prophecy. And in the book, I found one verse, actually part of one verse, that was prophetic looking to the future. The book is more uh, story than prophecy, more a narrative describing what happened uh, to Jonah. So this story comes in two sections. It comes in two sections. We'll look uh, first at the story then. Um, The book divides very easily. If If you've got a way to mark in your Bible, you can think about doing this. The book of Jonah divides in half. Okay, the first two chapters... That's the first half of the story. The second two chapters, Jonah 3 and 4, that's the second half. You can see that in Jonah 1 and verse 1. Look at the very first phrase. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's the beginning of the first half. Then look at Jonah 3 and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Okay, so you have the same exact expression starting off the two halves of this book. And these two halves have three parallel panels to them. The same thing happens twice, okay? It starts with God calling Jonah. Then uh, there is Jonah spending time with Gentiles, okay? In the first chapter, those Gentiles are sailors on a ship in the sea. In the second half, uh, that is Jonah with the Ninevites, okay? And then there's a third part where God talks with Jonah, And that's found in both the first half and the second half of the book as well. Now, as we consider these things, we'll start through the first half. The first half starts with God calling this prophet from northern Israel to preach to the great city of Nineveh. Look at Jonah 1 and verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. One of the key words in the book of Jonah is the word great. You'll see it all throughout. But Nineveh, indeed, is a great city. It's a very significant city or infamous city by ancient standards. And I think it would be really hard for us as moderns to truly understand how significant and powerful ancient Nineveh was. But we're going to try for just a very brief moment. The city was an important city. It was 
the, one of the most significant cities of the most powerful nation in the world at this time. That nation is Assyria, and Nineveh is its capital city. It was a large city. This past week I did some study on the walls of the city of ancient uh, Nineveh. Now, I, I didn't go over on a dig uh, to unearth some of this, like some of the others in our midst here. Uh, but uh, the description of these walls are amazing. Uh, Sennacherib described the city as having two walls, an inner and an outer wall. The outer wall was given a name which is translated the wall that overthrows the enemy. The outer wall stood 100 feet tall and 54 feet deep. The wall was wide enough at its top that you could race three chariots side by side around the top of the wall of the city of Nineveh. The city also boasted of over a thousand cornfields within the city limits. And according to scripture, we find out that it takes three full days journey by walking to get from one side of the city to the other. The city was a massive city, miles and miles in breadth. But we also know from scripture and from uh, other materials that Nineveh was a wicked city. It was a cruel city. The soldiers there were known for their brutality, sometimes even skinning their captives while alive and stretching out their skins for others to see. As a matter of fact, I'll read to you a portion of a text from Scripture that describes just how they were despised and hated for their cruelty. This comes from Zephaniah chapter 2. I'll read it out loud for us here. It says, and, and he, that's God, will stretch out his hand against the north to destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like a desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals, a voice shall hoot in the window. I had to practice that one a bunch of times. Uh, Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there's no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes her hisses and shakes his fist. This is the same city the ancient city of Nineveh. They were cruel and arrogant. They were filled with pride in their military. They felt that no other city could stand against them, and people despised and hated them. So that when they're destroyed, they shake their fist and hiss at the remains of the city. And so, as we're reading in this book, Jonah refuses to go there and preach. Instead, he goes to a city called Joppa, and he gets on a boat heading for Tarshish, uh, which is maybe a city in Spain or Africa. The, the point is, he's going away from Nineveh. He won't go there and preach. He's going into the sea to get as far away as he can, and he's trying to get away from the presence of God. Which, as a prophet, of course, if you ever read the Psalms, which were perhaps valuable, or... Uh, uh, were perhaps uh, something that uh, he could have perceived. He would know there's nowhere you can run from the presence of God. So he's running away from the presence of God. That's when God hurls a wind at him and creates a mighty tempest. Look in your Bible at verse 4, Jonah 1, 4. Believe me, the pace will pick up, don't worry. Jonah 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled 
a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Okay, so God's not going to let him go. And things get so bad that the wind is not the only thing that's hurled in chapter 1. I don't know if you've ever been reading through the text and picked this up. Uh, in the very next verse, we learn that the sailors hurl something. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Okay, so the wind is hurled at them. They hurl cargo over. And then in verse 15, finally and reluctantly, they decide to hurl Jonah into the sea to appease the God that created the sea and the dry land. Look at verse 15 with me. Jonah 1 verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly or greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they made vows. So Jonah's running away from the presence of the God. The sailors try everything. And then they finally hurl Jonah into the sea. It calms down. And they offer worship up to the creator God. And that's when God appoints a fish, a great fish. You say, yes, I knew it. This is a story about a fish. Well, there are sections about a great fish uh, in here. Chapter 1, verse 17, God appoints a great fish that swallows Jonah down. Imagine a more horrific thing than this. You're thrown into a raging sea. You're in the process of drowning. And then along comes a massive fish. Imagine how horrific this would be. What a way to die, or we're going to find out later, to be rescued. Going down into the gullet of a great fish, being swallowed into his stomach. And as we keep reading this ancient story, we realize that this is God's way to give Jonah a second chance. And from the belly, the stomach of this fish, he cries out to God. He, he prays a psalm of thanksgiving. He's thankful. He recognizes that this is a way that God's going to rescue him and that he'll have opportunity to offer sacrifices again in the temple one day. And although he's in this fish's stomach for three days and three nights, God intervenes and he's finally vomited out onto the ground, dry ground. That's the first half of the story. That leads us to the second half where God repeats the call to go to Nineveh. And he challenges Jonah to this time obey. Look at Jonah 3 and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This time Jonah goes and he preaches, and he preaches what is a short message. Look at chapter 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out. Okay, here's, his, the, here's a summary of his sermon. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay, a short sermon here. Only five words in Hebrew. But then what happens? Incredibly, the whole city repents. 
because of this sermon. The king issues uh, a lament and a proclamation for fasting and lamenting, and the people plead with God to turn from his fierce anger so that they won't perish. That's when we begin to learn a little bit more about Jonah. Okay, so the, the people of Nineveh are repenting at the short sermon he gives, and then we learn that Jonah actually wants them to pay for their brutal treatment that they've demonstrated toward the people of God. I think Jonah's anger and hatred is pictured most clearly for me in chapter 4, when Jonah, at the, near the end of the book, sets up a seat. He makes a little hut outside of the city to watch the fireworks display. So 40 days, you know, so near the end of that time, he sets up a little hut and a seat, and he can't wait to see the fire and brimstone come down on the people. But God does something different. God turns and forgives them. Instead, God relents of the disaster that he intends for the people, and Jonah is so angry that he asks God to take his life twice. With the story almost complete in chapter 4, Jonah, Jonah's emotions rage from highs to low, lows. In Jonah 4 and verse 1, at the beginning it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was exceedingly displeased. But then look at verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And and then a little bit later on in verse 10, we'll find out he was angry again. Angry enough to die. Jonah here is so angry, he asked God to take his life. And uh, he gets angry over the destruction of a plant that God had made that was providing him shade. The whole story brings us to, we come to a close in the story when we see that God makes a final case in verses 10 and 11 to show or to, to prove that he is free to show pity to whomever and whatever he desires. And then he explains that it, when he saves Nineveh at this time, uh, he will deliver 120,000 children and cattle who had no conscious part in the brutality that these people had inflicted. On others. That's a survey of the book. And it leaves us with just looking at one other thing, and that's the central message of Jonah's book. I think the central message of Jonah's book is found in chapters 3 and 4 in particular. And um, as the story continues on, some of the things within Jonah's heart become externalized. And we learn more and more of what's going on. And I think it's at that point where we learn what the central message of this book is. And the one thing I think that God would really have us focus on as a church family. If I were to state the central message of the book of Jonah, I would point to three significant moments near the second half of the book that we would focus in on a bit more to understand what God wants us to see in this book. The first significant moment, if you've got a handout, there's a blank there. You'll need, you'll need letter A, Nineveh's repentance. Nineveh's repentance. We've already commented on the wickedness of the city, but in chapter 1 and verse 2, in the middle of that verse, God makes it clear why he's going to judge these people. He says in 1-2, 
for their evil has come up before me. The word evil is a theme of this book as well. Their evil was repulsive to God. Their brutality was repulsive to him, and it came up before him. It came to his attention, and it was time for them to pay. Their notorious evil became too much for God, so Jonah preaches a short message, and they all repent. Again, this incredibly simple message was used by God to pierce their hearts. Uh, The way I describe it is this way. This was a sermon with... Little heat, little light, no grace, and amazing results. Little heat, little light, no grace, amazing results. It's a sermon of judgment. Forty days and God's going to come and you're going to be overthrown. Yet Jonah preaches and he goes one day's journey into the city and then a chain reaction occurs where there's a mass change of heart for the entire city and they repent and they ask God to help them to deliver them. And so we have to see that theme to understand the central message of this book. We also need to focus on the forgiveness of God that's demonstrated. You see that very clearly in chapter 3, verse 10. So look in your Bible at chapter 3, verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how that they turned from their evil. Remember at the beginning of the book, their evil has come up before me. Now they turn from their evil. And when God sees that they turn from their evil, the text says God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, now many interpreters, when they come to this place, and what God does here, they really struggle with this. And one of the reasons for that is the way this used to be translated in many English versions. This word relented in some other translations is translated repented and so the objections come you know how in the world could this be possible why would it be necessary for god to repent how could that be possible does that mean that god was wrong well i actually like the word relent here and i think it's a very faithful translation of the hebrew as well the actual hebrew word can carry the idea of changing one's mind of changing a course Uh, or direction, or changing of commitments. And God here has revealed in his holy scriptures how he intends to work with the people of Nineveh. And this is not an exception for God. Matter of fact, I was reading in another prophetic book this week, and it came to the book of Jeremiah. And in this text, God tells us exactly how he's going to work with the nations. Not just Israel, but nations outside of them, Gentiles. In Jeremiah 18, verse 7, God says this. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I had spoken turns from its, what? Evil. I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, and if it does, what? evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. I think Jeremiah makes it really clear here that it's always been God's intention to respond to the repentance of his creatures. Or, as Jonah will say it in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, 
He says, I knew, God, that you are a gracious God. You're merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I knew it. That's your nature. This is our God. So Nineveh repents. In Jonah 3 and verse 10, God relents of the disaster that he planned on these people. And that leaves us really just to one final observation that we need to focus in on, and that is Jonah's response. If we're going to figure out the central message of the book of Jonah, we need to consider the response of Jonah. Although God is slow to anger, Jonah is overcome with it. As a matter of fact, in the the first four verses of chapter 4, there is a clear contrast in the anger of Jonah and the slowness of anger in God. And I'm so thankful for this. Let's look in Jonah 4, verses 1 through 4, and let's look for the words anger and angry, and I think you'll see the the main point the author is getting to in this climactic chapter in the book. Verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? In this paragraph right here, and if you would keep reading, chapter 4, Jonah's anger at the results of his preaching is set against God's refusal to show anger quickly on any people. But Jonah won't have anything of God's grace and mercy to the Ninevites after what they've done to his people. And we learn here in chapter 4 that this is the whole reason why he refused to go in the first place. He knew that if he went, God was going to forgive these people. Jonah's problems, I think, involve his fundamental commitments. Those are his beliefs or values that he used to order his whole life. And I want to try to portray that for you for just a moment. I'll say it in two ways. What are Jonah's fundamental commitments? The beliefs or values that for him were non-negotiable in order for things to go right. His first one was this. Jonah despised the Ninevites. Now, he might not come right out and say it so he can protect his own image, but Jonah feels no compassion on the inhabitants of the city. From Jonah's perspective, the Ninevites were all evil and they deserved nothing but judgment. They were monsters, monsters who preyed on the vulnerable and were guilty of mass killings of the Israelite people and of other nations. For Jonah, there was no question whether these monsters should receive mercy. The answer is no. They should not get grace. They should burn. Jonah's fundamental commitment was he despised the Ninevites. Now, to add to that, I would add this second fundamental commitment from Jonah. Jonah imposes his own hatred of the Ninevites on God. 
God must conform to Jonah's presuppositions about the Ninevites. From Jonah's perspective, God should give to Nineveh nothing but judgment. And when God won't comply with his vision of God, Jonah takes matters into his own hands. Jonah will be what God should have been. He will be just if God won't be. And this, of course, is nothing short than Jonah judging the creator, God. And Jonah's judgment of God gets so bold that he begins to question everything that God does in chapter 4. Not only is he repulsed at God's decisions to deliver Nineveh, he later grows so upset about God's decision to destroy a plant that he insists on dying. It seems that from Jonah's perspective, God is doing everything wrong. And how stunning of a book this is. That a human being, former failure of a prophet, forgiven by the grace of God, would stand in judgment over Yahweh, the creator of the seas and of the land. Now, as we consider what we might learn from this passage today, what we might learn from the central message of the book, there are two applications I would like to make for us today. First, Jonah is not the only person of faith who imposes things on God with preconceived judgments and values. Jonah is not the only person of faith who imposes things on God with preconceived judgments and values. Some of us, maybe many of us, force our values and our commitments on God as well. For instance, just to keep in line with the message of the book, we don't like it when God offers grace to our enemies either. We might struggle when someone who has hurt us or harmed us in our families seems to turn from his or her sin and seek God's mercy and forgiveness. We don't think that perhaps they're worthy of that, worthy of the judgment of God. But what might help us in those moments, I think one of the things that I, I think um, been, has been able to help people that I've learned from in our congregation is to remember that we too are the objects of God's grace as well. When you think about the story of Jonah, when Jonah is drowning in the sea, still refusing to repent, by the way, he chose to drown in the sea, so throw me overboard. He confessed what he did, but he never repented to the Lord at that point. When he's drowning in the sea, refusing to repent, God delivers Jonah with a fish, and then he finally calls out to God and is forgiven. And in those moments of sheer rebellion and obstinate sin, God showed pity on him and delivered him. And that deliverance for Jonah was fine. Because Jonah privileged himself before God. He gives himself the benefit of the doubt, but not the Ninevites. No, no, they're, they're truly wicked people. And I think that we often do this as well. We often do this as well. We privilege ourselves, but punish our enemies. 
okay, Lord, well, you know, I'm kind of a good guy here. You know what I get? I get grace. But that person who did that to me, fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone. Jonah is not the only person of faith who imposes on God preconceived judgments and values regarding people. And secondly, I would uh, make this final application. Jonah is not the last person of self to arrogate himself or herself to a, the place of God if God delays what he or she feels is right. Jonah's not the last believer who lifted himself up to the place of God to do what really needs to happen. Some of us demonstrate impulsive anger against sinners who, to this point, have failed to repent. And in some of these cases, God's grace and kindness is far greater than ours, and he has a plan to bring that person or nation to the point of repentance and forgiveness. Let's commit, again, to think properly of who God is submitting to how the scriptures describe him and submitting to whatever he asks us to do. Colonial, may we submit to God, not to our own vision of what he should be. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful that you use sinful men and women like Jonah to proclaim the glories of forgiveness <clears throat> for us, of course, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that you are patient with us, that you've demonstrated mercy and grace to us. Lord, it is easy for us to have our own set of biases, uh, perhaps against a nation or a people who have history of brutality. And we think, boy, they really deserve judgment. It's so easy for us to, to think about the, the messages that we proclaim to them. Uh, we're going to emphasize judgment, wrath, fire. And yet to lose sight of your mercy and grace and the fact that you make it possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ for any person to be forgiven any person to be forgiven. It's easy for us to sit in judgment over someone who's hurt us. Someone who has hurt us severely, perhaps even. And without saying it, I must pull up a chair in eagerness waiting for your judgment. Lord, may this error of Jonah be far from us. May it not be true of us, those who've been saved by the mercies and grace of God. Lord, may we look and rejoice in the forgiveness of fallen men and women when they turn to you through your son, Jesus Christ. May we not privilege ourselves and punish our enemies. But may we submit to you, not to our vision of you, but to you as revealed in this text of scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.